Dictionary Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm E. Jackson. We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts. My segment explores a theoretical and historical analysis of our topic. And I talk about our topic through the lens of pedagogy and education with a focus on practical application. I work with elementary, middle, and high school students in schools, as well as extracurricular programming such as after school and community centers. My next graphic novel, The Breakaways, is coming out from first second in March. You can pre-order it at thebreakawayscomic.com. Um, I have a master's degree in art education. And I'm a PhD student uh, in the University of Florida's English program. My research focuses on comic studies and museum studies, and I also teach at the undergraduate level, and I make self-published comics. So um, on today's episode of Drawing a Dialogue, episode 16, we are going to talk about incarceration and the prison system in the United States. E is going to look at the history of writings by imprisoned persons as a form of resistance to the carceral system. Uh, the carceral system ref- refers to the net, uh, the ways in which all of society is bound up in the prison system and systems of punishment. Mm. And I'm going to talk about the school to prison pipeline, which is the complex racialized webs of legal policy and institutional processes that create linkages between schools and prisons, including this carceral system that he just talked about. Mm-hmm. I'm also going to give a brief history on juvenile courts in my segment, which is after ease. So we wanted to, we were having a discussion um, before we started um, recording. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As with a lot of what we talk about, but I think especially in this case, um, this topic is very big um, and very difficult to parse down into something suitable for like a 30 minute segment on a podcast. Yeah, we're drawing on a lot. I know in my segment, at least I'm drawing on a lot of history, a lot of theories, uh, critical prison studies um, that aren't going to be my main focus that I might just gesture towards. But we wanted to sort of talk about the fact that it it was difficult for us to figure out what specifically we wanted to focus on here. Yeah, I think for me, it's a very present reality in a lot of my students' lives, right? So the reality mm-hmm. of the school to prison pipeline, which is these like extremely systemic racialized processes that really, really affect their lives, right? Mm-hmm. So this is something that has been part of my educational practice, something that I've tried to be extremely aware of for years now. Mm-hmm. And so this is like extremely relevant topic to me, and it really should be relevant to all citizens of the United States. Yeah. Even if you personally, your life has not been touched um, by incarceration, it has touched the lives of millions of Americans, mm-hmm. some fellow citizens. Yeah. And for me, um, I'm currently in school in Florida, right? Yeah. And Florida is has currently and I'm I'm actually like literally pulling this from a Miami New Times article from this summer that Florida's incarceration rate on its own is higher than every nation on the planet yeah. and the system is particularly um oppressive here yeah um and and so when I was going into this class and like moving back to Florida 
it was really important for me to be aware of and be engaged with this topic in a meaningful way. And even looking back on the contemporary movements of like Black Lives Matter, of mm-hmm. um, of awareness of police brutality, you'll yeah. look back and a lot of those events took place in Florida, right? So yes. Trayvon Martin was killed in Florida. Um, the Orlando shootings mm-hmm. of the nightclub happened in Florida. It's it's the site of a lot of activism. And I think what I'm saying is that it's it's getting a lot of media attention, but the systemic like why these things are happening is why we wanted to dig deeper mm-hmm. right so like yes, yes yeah. these events are happening within florida but like why is this taking place yeah 100 percent. i also want to shout out jackie wang whose new book mm-hmm. carceral capitalism came out from Simeotext this summer i know jackie from way back in the day from baltimore when we were both students and so i was really excited to get her book and it was getting this book that made me go like we should get this book east started reading this book it has i mean jackie's from florida mm-hmm. um yeah and so this book is incredible but it goes extremely deep because this is so ingrained in American civilization. Yes. To even have tried to source Jackie's book into our podcast would have gone extremely. So here's our first episode on incarceration. Yes. We will definitely come back to this. (laughs) Yes. Um, We will do what we can with this episode. But even as you can tell from this intro, it's so complicated and so secretive. It was hard to just do one episode to try to accomplish everything that we want to accomplish. And then I also want to give a content warning. We will um, be discussing systemic racism. And um, I'm going to be talking about school violence um, with mentions of school shootings. Um, This Mm -hmm. is because these large tragic events and the media attention they garner exacerbates the everyday reality for many schools in the United States. Um, But I just wanted to give you just a content warning, a trigger warning that that's very much what we're going to be talking about today. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be also not in depth, but it will come up uh, talking about uh, forms of violence against queer people specifically. So also just a heads Mm -hmm. up for that. So that's our intro. Mm-hmm. E, are you ready for your segment? Okay, so I think maybe the best way to enter into this conversation is to start by explaining the 13th Amendment. So the 13th Amendment states, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So it's really important to understand that amendment because a lot Mm -hmm. of the discussion of the relationship between contemporary prison labor practices and mass incarceration comes back to the fact that when slavery was abolished, it was not completely abolished. And we mentioned this in episode 12, actually, as well, with the history of racism in physiognomy and cartooning. Um, So I wanted to sort of start with that as sort of the broad framework, because many theorists, uh, Angela Davis has uh, worked at this relationship in her 2003 book, Are Prisons Obsolete? And Dylan Rodriguez has also spoken to this in his book, Forced Passages. 
that the American system of punishment that comes out of a chattel slavery specifically uh, colonial. I would also add colonialism and chattel slavery, because I think a thing that's maybe hard to conceptualize that's important to conceptualize when we're talking about the prison system is that prior to the prison system, jails were places that sort of you hung out while you waited to find out what your punishment actually was. Because mm. the idea that deprivation of liberty was itself a punishment did not exist prior to the Enlightenment and colonialization. So it wasn't until that was able to be conceptualized that the prison became like the punishment itself. Can you give me dates on like the Enlightenment? Yeah, so that is the early, like late 70s. 17th, early 18th um, into the 19th century as well. The other thing to keep in mind, I think, when we talk about this is that like the idea of prison reform begins mm. the second the first penitentiary is opened. It's baked into the process mm. of what is referred to and what I'm going to use in this podcast of um, carceral logic. So the way that society is structured around the penitentiary. Um, prison reform isn't like the prison was built and people realized it was bad and started trying to fix it. It basically came into being at the same exact moment. And what prison reform has really led to is people trying to build better prisons, which is why, and I'm going to talk about abolitionism, but that's the reason that if you engage with prison abolitionism, they've distanced themselves from prison reform. Because reform is just making better prisons, which abolition argues that there shouldn't be prisons at all, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. So the other idea that I wanted to find, because this is, I'm going to like move us into like contemporary, right? Um, the system that we have now, the current carceral system in America is described as mass incarceration. Um, Angela Javis in Our Prisons Obsolete describes it as um, the massive prison building project that began in the 1980s created the means of concentrating and managing what the capitalist system had implicitly declared to be a human surplus. So this is in the 80s is when you start to see these maximum security, like max prisons being built, super max prisons being built. Uh, Angela Davis wrote this book in 2003, right? This is when this book came out. And um, if you don't know who Angela Davis is, she is a feminist writer and a prison abolitionist writer um, who was imprisoned uh, as like she was a political prisoner. And in her introduction to this book, which was written in 2003, she wrote, um, when I first became involved in anti-prison activism during the 1960s, I was astounded to learn that there were then close to 200,000 people in prison. In 2003, there were... Out of 9 million incarcerated persons worldwide, 2 million were occupied in U.S. prisons. Currently occupied... I have 2.3 million here. I have 2.4 uh, for U.S. and territories, including stuff like ICE facilities. Yes, yeah. That's in 2008, so something like 2.4, 2.3 million. Right, and, that, and then there's an additional... In 2003, the number was 4.7 million on probation or parole, and that's also not counting the... I think uh, Ruben Miller says something around 4 million people who um, were previously incarcerated have a, a criminal record. Okay. So, like I said, this 
idea of the penitentiary rises out of colonialism and chattel slavery. Uh, and then in the 80s, we see this break where mass incarceration starts to happen. And this is where you start to see the prison industrial complex. Um, so again, quoting Davis, um, the term prison industrial complex was introduced by activists and scholars to contextualize prevailing beliefs that increased levels of crime were the root cause of mounting prison populations. Instead, they argued prison construction and the attendant drive to fill these new structures with human bodies had been driven by ideologies of racism and the pursuit of profit. And this term was first used by Mike Davis in relationship to the California system, which he observed in the 90s had begun to, quote, rival agribusiness and land development as a major economic and political force. Um, so the prison industrial complex is like a relatively recent term that's used to describe the economic relationship of prisons within this country, that prison labor is a major part of our economy. It really is. Which yeah. is why the prisons need to keep being built and keep being filled because they need that labor. The fact for, and so like go on with Davis, the fact, for example, that many corporations with global markets now rely on prisons as an important source of profit helps us to understand the rapidity with which prisons began to proliferate precisely at a time when official studies indicated that the crime rate was falling. Um... This idea is that, like, the role of the prison, essentially, is not to, quote-unquote, keep society safe or round up criminals. It's to create a forced body of labor that corporations can use and make a profit off of. And that's prison labor. But that's also people—there's also companies that just have deals with prison, that produce mm -hmm. uh, technology for prisons that produce products for prisons. So like when we talk about this uh, industrial complex, it's important to know that it's prison labor is a huge part of it and like a main issue, but it's not just prison labor. It is corporations deals with the prisons itself yeah. and with law enforcement. Um, so moving us into like even more contemporary, Dr. Ruben Miller. Um, so he moves us away from the idea of mass incarceration to mass supervision. So not just the prison, but life around the prison. In our gaze episodes, I talked about Foucault's concept of the panopticon, which actually comes from Foucault's history of the penitentiary, um, Discipline and Punish. Uh, and the panopticon was a penitentiary idea that if power is sort of exerted through these capillary networks in society, everyone's watching each other. And it's it, Foucault kind of theorizes power not as like an oppressive thing, but as a generative thing. So to Foucault, like a report card is power because it is writing down on paper a fact about someone. Mm. So so this is sort of like drawing on this idea of the panopticon of like mass supervision. Uh, and uh, Jackie Wang talks about this in her book of like algorithms, uh, like predictive algorithms to figure out who's more likely to be guilty of a crime before they're even born. Yeah. And, and she's writing in 2018. Yeah. Like she's writing like now. Yeah. So all of that is sort of I realize that's like a lot of stuff I've just thrown but I feel like all of that's really important uh, context for like the system that incarcerated and formerly incarcerated persons live in. Mm -hmm. So now what I want to talk yeah. about is prisoner writing. So prisoner writing is a genre that goes back to this pre-penitentiary era. It begins with epistolatory narratives. And this is in um, the 1700s, 1800s. Um, 
Mm. So what started happening is prisoners, there would be prisoner narratives that were written. Like, so when I say epistolatory, I mean letter writing. Okay. Um, so there would be like people who are in j- who are jailed waiting to ha- have their punishment would write. And they all sort of followed the same format of being like, this is what I did. I was led astray from God. I repent and I hope that my story serves as a moral warning for you not to do what I did. Yeah. (laughs) And then those were taken and they were published. They were mass produced. So this is actually like one of the very earliest forms of mass produced literature that actually paves the way for what becomes the novel. Like the very earliest form of the novel comes out of this prison writing. So a lot of this I'm taking from Jody Shorb's book, Reading Prisoners, um, Literature, Literacy, and the Transformation of American Punishment. I'm actually remembering, so you remember how I went and saw Othello a couple times a year ago or more? I mentioned it on this podcast. Yeah. So the villain of Othello is Iago. Right. And part of what makes him one of Shakespeare's greatest villains is that he does not repent. Right. Which audience members would be extremely familiar with mm-hmm. this repentance, with this like guilty letters, because that that they were reading these published right so then there's an interesting thing that happens in that um when we sort of switch to the penitentiary system this like mass proliferation of these epistolatory prisoner narratives kind of comes to a stop um there's still some Mm. but they're very few because the penitentiary system purposely obscured what punishment was like a big part of the penitentiary system was that like you're taking the prisoners out of public view Right. Which is very much still the case. Hiding people. Prisoner writing does continue to be a thing, though. And I can't talk too, too, too much to the history of it, but I'm going to... I'm going to pull up Dylan Rodriguez for this um, because Dylan Rodriguez, uh, who is another important figure in sort of critical prison studies, right, who I spoke about writing on the relationship between the middle passage specifically and carceral logic. He basically Mm. proposes this this idea in his book, Forced Passages, which is a prisoner is the radical intellectual. Mm. So that either political prisoners and prisoners of war, but also people that were imprisoned and then while imprisoned become radicalized against the prison, whether that's like Mm. becoming like an anti-prison abolitionist or just... um, without it actually being tied to some sort of broader movement, sort of articulating this resistance to the prison as like a mechanism. Um, So he calls that group of people like broadly radical intellectuals. Mm. So I'm going to read a quote from him. Through an extraordinary mirroring and rearticulation of the dystopic structure of imprisonment, a regime founded on the symbiosis between the logics of displacement and degradation This political intellectual work of the radical imprisoned person, right, inaugurates new vernacular forms, including the construction of new languages of agency, politics, freedom, identity, community, sovereignty, and struggle. So through re-articulating from within the prison or outside the prison, but having been imprisoned, the structure of imprisonment, um, and when we say the structure of imprisonment, they don't just mean literally like the architecture. They're also talking about the logical ordering of how sentencing works. They, these prisoners, he's saying, engage within a new way the structure um, which deals with the logics of displacement. So literally like displacing them from society, displacing their bodies um, and degradation. 
uh, creates these new communities, this new struggle, this new out language of politics. And then he goes on to say, these meanings constantly exceed and slip from the grasp of conventional modes of political, academic, and activist discourse. So what he's saying is that these writings aren't able to be fully understood by people on the outside, even like activists or political Mm. workers or academics, like because they are not within the the carceral logic they cannot ever fully realize the meanings that are being articulated by these uh, imprisoned persons. Mm. So let's see. He says, thus my use of the term radical prison practice, which is how he describes. um, So radical prison practice foregrounds the institutional and historical condition of this lineage of political work and it is constituted and delimited by a carceral structuring of totalizing and legitimizing state violence. So he's using radical prison practice to invoke the institution and historical condition of political prison writing, right? So this like lineage, this legacy of political resonating as it is made by carceral structuring of state violence, which is basically total and impossible to avoid. Um, Mm. Radical prison practice is fundamentally an institutional and discursive antagonism that is an insurgent or insurrectionist formation of critique dissent and rebellion so it is a praxis that is in resistance to the carceral system that elaborates a conception of political subjectivity its context possibles and historicity specific to the formation of the prison so what he's saying is that um it allows imprisoned peoples to sort of generate their own visions of agency despite being within the Mm. system and it conceptualizes praxis through the terms with which it is organically linked and historically belongs to a lineage of imprisoned radical intellectuals, again, building on his like idea of like this legacy of imprisoned uh, political writers. And three, shifts the presumptive political geography of praxis by examining its formation at the site of imprisonment, a disjuncture from the juridical and cultural domains of civil society. So this praxis allows... Uh, radical intellectual prisoners to create their own forms of agency even within the system and it changes what praxis means by looking at it within the site of imprisonment because the logic within the prison is so disrupted from reality outside the prison that people outside of the prison Mm -hmm. are unable to actually conceptualize it. Mm -hmm. But I think this is like a really critical idea because what we're kind of getting at, what I'm trying to get at here is that like this, you know, writings by prisoners, um, by like currently incarcerated people, uh, writings and art and drawing and like, engagement essentially is a radical discourse that is resistant to carceral logic in a way that people Mm -hmm. on the outside cannot necessarily process or relate to and i wanted to use that as my jumping off point for talking about specifically abo comics which is a queer prisoners anthology from 2017 that was put together by volunteers working with currently incarcerated queer prisoners and Black and Pink, which is a organization that works specifically with queer imprisoned peoples. The editors for Abo Comics are Casper, Io, and Wolf. Yes. Yes, thank you. 
So I've talked a lot about the specific relationship between American carceral logic and slavery, but there's also a relationship historically between carceral logic and queerness. And I wanted to like kind of give us that context because this is specifically queer prisoners, right? Um, I wanted to read us a quote from uh, Captive Genders, which is uh, Trans Embodiment in the Prison Industrial Complex. It is an anthology that was edited by Eric Stanley and Nat Smith, and uh, the edition I have actually has a foreword by C.C. McDonald. But this quote, I believe, comes from the introduction. Um, Among the most volatile points of contact between state violence and one's body is the domain of gender. Transgender, nonconforming, and queer people, along with many others, are born into webs of surveillance. The gendering scan of other children at an early age, are you a girl or a boy, places many in the panopticon long before they enter a prison. For those who do trespass the gender binary or heteronormativity, physical violence, isolation, detention, or parental disappointment become some of the first punishments. So I, I, I just mentioned the Panopticon, right? And we were just talking about mass surveillance. So part of this mass surveillance is looking specifically at failure to conform to gender norms. And failing to conform to gender norms is punished by state-sanctioned violence, including imprisonment. Um, I think it's important to understand that, like, literally th- um, there have been laws about gender presentation. I mean, it, it's also very true um, in schools, not just uniforms, but like gendered uniforms with skirt, uh, skirts and pants, like graduation ceremonies with like who has to wear a dress, who has to wear pants, formal functions, but also the everyday clothing and dress codes um, still very much as policing clothing. I mean, that's like yes. contemporary. Yeah. So like the specific need to pay attention to the relationship between queerness and criminality and um, the carceral system is really important to me. Um, before I start talking about Abo comics sort of in depth, I wanted to really read this quote um, from this is within captive genders, but it's a chapter by uh, Stephen Dillon called the only freedom I can see imprisoned queer writing and the politics of the unimaginable. Dylan in this uh, chapter is talking about his experiences, like exchanging letters with two queer pen pals inside the prison. Mm. But there's this one section called Queering Abolition, Undoing Homonormativity, where he says, when I asked R, who is one of the people he's writing to, what she needed from me as a scholar, activist and friend, she responded, the last thing I would want is for someone to feel sorry for me. For what I need most help in is to overcome all the negative in my life and become a more positive person, but not just for myself, but for my people within the gay community and the free world and here behind these prison bars. But Steve, what hurts me the most is this, the lack of knowledge within the gay community in the free world concerning LGBT people behind bars it makes me feel like my brothers and sisters in the free world could care less about us that are behind prison bars or we must be the forgotten ones and this i don't understand so uh dylan goes on to write Mm. what has made this forgetting possible what subjects arise out of this loss in criminal intimacy kunzel charts the forced forgetting of imprisoned lgbtq people by free world queer activist communities Um, By looking at mainstream gay and queer left publications, Kunzel notes a transition from a politics of solidarity with imprisoned LGBTQ people in the 1970s um, with slogans such as, we are all prisoners, we are all fugitives, and free our sisters, free ourselves, 
to a position of distance and disidentification beginning in the 1980s. Mm. Kunzel notes the ways that in the 1970s, queer activists connected their experiences of personal and institutionalized racism and homophobia with the struggle of all prisoners. Because we understand that the system has created and maintained prisons as a method of social control is the same system that oppresses those of us on the outside. This liberatory queer politic was not concerned with giving queer prisoners a, quote, helping hand, but rather sought to build a new type of community that could simultaneously challenge the racialized politics of criminality, social control, bodily regulation, and the management of queer desire. In the 1980s, Kunzel marks a decline in prison pen pal projects and a shift from revolutionary politics to liberal politics bent on social inclusion, rights, and gay marriage. Many queer activist concerns shifted to winnable battles in which queer prisoners were constructed as a negative element in the overall debate concerning gay rights. Gay activists sought to build a movement with as little fragmentation as possible. Yeah. And it's really, really, really important that we're talking about this because, mm. and this is, this is just me. This isn't coming from my sources. I don't see a future that allows for transness that does not involve dismantling the prison system because they are so deeply intertwined. I think it's just incredibly dangerous and irresponsible to not be engaging with imprisoned people, not just queer, pri not just queer prisoners, but all imprisoned people. And that's just for me, not from my reading. But mm. now I want to talk about a really, really good thing. Um, so Abo Comics is comics by 22 currently incarcerated uh, prisoners from across the U.S., um abo comics is really important and if you have the opportunity to purchase a copy um please do so so there are 22 there are comics by 22 people there are 25 comics um and it's a short anthology um i wanted to actually um it opens with a letter from uh el tadana called making comics under prison conditions um so this is a letter from uh one of the artists in the book right so E.L. writes, what is it like to be locked up, to have a world inside you that no one knows about? So much to say dream within dreams. I cannot speak for every prison artist because each prison is different. Even on the same prison unit, there will be differences depending on what cell block or dorm you live in and what officers are working at the time. Likewise, each artist is unique. With that in mind, I will attempt to answer this question from my own experiences and those of other artists I know. Being a prison artist often requires some MacGyver-like creativity as we come up with ways to invent ways to make common tools and materials found in your local craft store. In the future, I hope to create a comic series illustrating prison art techniques in general. On the subjects of comics arts, I had to borrow a protractor because I don't normally use straight edges in my drawings. So measurements and layout creation was definitely new. We make shade sticks from pages of crossword puzzles rolled up tightly. I use Tootsie, Roll, Tootsie Pop sticks for fine detail shading. Uh, we received some very helpful instructions and guidelines from Abo Comics on how to create a homemade zine. Those instructions provided us with a frame to fill with our art. However, for me, logistically, there was a lot of pre-production. I first created a script of dialogue. After the script was written, I then numbered and divided those scenes into cells. Ironic? within the comics. Deciding on which scene would become the centerpiece was pivotal to the process. Lastly, I created a basic storyboard sketch and then began the final draft. The whole process from start to finish for the comics Time and Chance, which is uh, E.L.'s comic in this book, uh, took me three days. Not to mention lots of cups of coffee because similar to the volunteers at Abo Comics, I have a day job as well. 
For every artist you see represented in this anthology, there are many more who started yet never finished. The ones I know either had too many other art projects they were doing for commissary items, or they were freestyle artists who draw intuitively. Let's face it, people don't come to prison because they are good at setting priorities, time management, and following instructions. All of those skills are needed for every artist who wants to make comics. In this school of hard knocks, I've learned that success doesn't happen overnight. It takes hard work, preparation, planning, as well as execution. Likewise, no one succeeds on their own without help. And then that E.L. thanks Abo Comics and says, None of us can change our past, yet together, we can all create a better future. Um, and I like, I wanted to sort of have that out there because I think it's like an important to talk about the like, just the material conditions that imprisoned people are like working under when they create writing and art. And also just that last note of like working together again, building that community of like prison abolitionism and queer um, abolitionism that like is about supporting each other from the outside uh, and the inside. Um, the comics themselves vary widely in content. There's not really a way for me to generalize and I wouldn't want to. Um, for me, though, or I guess what I wanted to sort of frame them as is like, again, engaging with that idea of radical intellectualism, of like radical prison practice and of resistance. Um, there's a couple that I wanted to sort of specifically speak to. Um, the uh, Diatribes of a Morning Star, which is by Krista Morningstar, which is an ex her it's sort of a short story about her, her like putting on makeup um, what's very interesting to me is that she actually describes her, um, getting dressed, um, she, it's sort of her, like, talking about being brave enough to wear her makeup outside of her cell, right? But she just, the panel she uses to, like, describe herself getting ready to, like, go outside with her makeup on is a magical girl transformation, which just feels like this really wonderful use of that idea of like magical girl as like a symbol for like um resistance like feminine resistance specifically like magical girl characters are like feminine ingenuity and uh like sort of represent this idea of like not the like sort of western idea of like oh a tough girl like a strong girl is a girl who like beats people up but like magical girls are like about embracing their feelings and like using a, like their femininity as like a way to make the world better mm. so i really like i just really <laughs> i don't really know how to talk about this without just being like i love all of these comics yeah well she writes herself and on the her last page of both she has two comics in this anthology yes at the end of this first one, she she actually writes, Don't take this the wrong way. The concepts of universal love and non-judgmentalism are the cornerstones of my belief system. It's just that the messenger, mainstream religion, has been subverting this idea to the further of its own agenda for time and memorable. Since things are the way that they are, the only answer I have found is to adopt a policy of gradual and persistent nonconformity, acclimating those around you to the inevitable change being brought into existence. Keep fighting the good fight. Yeah. I just, I loved the idea of um, persistent nonconformity, especially in the prison industrial context. 100%. And actually, um, one thing that is really common across all of these comics is that um, as opposed to sort of like what Dylan rodriguez advances as his like vernacular his theoretical vernacular of death which sort of has like a um hopelessness to it um these are all very hopeful and like all very looking towards the future whether that is like them getting out of 
prison or just them imagining a future of solidarity or like a future without prisons. And even if it's one that is sort of negative, because there are some that have sort of darker outlooks, Mm -hmm. it's still the production of this text for people on the outside to read is Mm -hmm. already is still so hopeful. Yeah, because these were being made like with the intention of being read by people on the outside. Um, Like these are very much like they're writing towards an audience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think there's one other one I really wanted to highlight. I really like the one. I mean, there's a lot of ones about prison life, uh, whether they're autobiographical or Mm -hmm. they are fantastical or it's actually like sort of a combination of the two. Like it's very much like a futurism mm-hmm. like a it's like very sci-fi like it's just yeah. like taking reality and twisting it yeah mm-hmm. um so the other one i really want to talk about is um j it's two people writing together under the synonym j shandy two uh, called Prison Frog. And it's a short story about them, th- these two uh, men that found a frog outside in the cold and took it inside to keep as a pet. But after realizing that they didn't have anything they could like feed him, they let him go free. And the last page is them like watching him, the frog, sort of like escaping the walls of the prison. And they're saying to each other, I hope he finds someplace warm and safe. Me too. He wouldn't have had that here. Um, And this one they say is, we experienced exactly this two summers ago and this last winter. Um, This comic is based on that winter. Um, So there's something to me just very like the like demonstration of caretaking, first of all, right? Of like trying to care for the frog. And then also the like the frog sort of becoming like a symbol of like future freedom. You know what I mean? That they that they let it go. (laughs) <laughs> like out beyond the prison mm. it just mm. struck me as like very particularly touching and also the story is special enough to them that they made a yeah comic about it yeah 100 percent. Right? and they made it together yeah. and i think that's really important too is that like this was a, a, a two people working on one so again like going back to these like themes of like collaboration and solidarity um and I think it's like when when I talk about this work and the reason I wanted to like sort of frame it the way I framed it is because like I think it's very easy to fall into that sort of like othering um, instead of like really recognizing these writers and artists as like, you know, like resistant radical figures that aren't just like objects of interest, right? But like actual people who are living in this system. Yeah. I got to talk to Io, who is one of the editors and coordinators yeah. of the anthology at SBX. There's so many leads in which I could follow for this podcast. Yeah. And uh, hopefully um, someday Io can either be part of this podcast or um, send us some um an email or something like that. Anyway, hello, Io. <laughs> I just feel like it, I agree with E. I I think it's really important to there's it's easy to theorize about this huge population of people, right? Um, but to actually use their words and talk about their work and not just talk about them as a object, but as like a as individuals, mm-hmm. I think is important to the work that we're doing right now. Yeah. Um. So to sort of wrap up my segment. I wanted to reiterate the importance of engaging with imprisoned peoples uh, in whatever capacity you can. If you live in an area that has a black and pink, reach out to them about becoming a pen pal. 
but also become a pen pal with the genuine intention of writing people back because yes. I think it's easy. It can take months to receive a letter and I, I, feel, I feel like you should engage with being a pen pal with purpose and yes, 100%. be very intentional about it. My pitch is basically just look for the local incarcerated person's rights groups and just really think about how you can contribute and be aware of and help make um, those spaces uh, for incarcerated people to exercise their agency. And if you don't have the time to donate, you might have the money to donate. Yes. Um, And then the last thing I want to do is read from Captive Genders again, and it's Morgan uh, Basici's Alexander Lee and Dean Spade's Lessons is how they describe it, for creating a trans and queer abolitionist movement. One, we refuse to create deserving versus undeserving victims. Although we understand that transgender and gender nonconforming people in uh, prison jails and detention centers experience egregious and often specific forms of violence, we recognize that all people impacted by the prison industrial complex are facing severe violence. Instead of saying that transgender people are the most oppressed, we can talk about the different forms of violence that people impacted by the prison industrial complex face and how those forms of violence help maintain the status quo common sense that the quote real bad people, the quote rapists, murderers, child molesters, and in some cases now the bigots, deserve to be locked up. We know that the push for hate crime laws as a solution to anti-queer and trans violence will never actually address the fundamental reasons why we are vulnerable to violence in the first place or why homophobia and transphobia are encouraged in our cultures. We must end the cycle of oppressed people being pitted against one another. Two, we support strategies that weaken oppressive institutions, not strengthen them. We want strategies that will reduce and ultimately eliminate the number of people and dollars going into prisons while attending to the immediate healing and redress of individual imprisoned people. Three, we must transform exploitative dynamics in our work. Research, media, cultural work, and activism on this issue needs to be accountable to and directed by low-income transgender people and transgender people of color and our organizations. Or we see ending trans imprisonment as part of the larger struggle for transformation. Struggling against trans imprisonment is one of many key places to radicalize queer and trans politics, expand anti-prison politics, and join in a larger movement for radical economic, gender, and social justice to end all forms of militarization, criminalization, and warfare. And then I just want to cap off with maybe wrestling with such a significant demand is the wake up call that an increasingly sleepy LGBT movement needs. The true potential of the queer and trans politics cannot be found in attempting to reinforce our tenuous right to exist by undermining someone else's. If it is not clear already, we are all in this together. To claim our legacy of beautiful impossibility is to begin practicing ways of being with one another and making movement that sustain all life on this planet without exception. It is to begin speaking what we have not yet had the words to wish for. That's all I got. Thank you so much, E. And now it's time for my segment, where we look at our topic through an educational and sort of pedagogical lens. Right. So I'm going to start with a definition of the school-to-prison pipeline. Okay. It's from the book, The School-to-Prison Pipeline, The Role of Culture and Discipline in School. It's from Emerald Publishing from 2017, which is great to get a current book. Mm-hmm. The editors are Okilwa, Khalifa, and Briscoe. And here's the definition of the school to prison pipeline. The complex racialized webs of legal policy and institutional processes 
that create linkages between schools and prison. The ACLU says that the school-to-prison pipeline is a disturbing national trend wherein children are funneled out of public schools and into the juvenile and criminal justice systems, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like a lot of who E was talking about are sort of um, adults, but... Mm -hmm children become adults and so mm -hmm. a lot of this stuff starts young and that's sort of what the school to prison pipeline is the name of the theory to talk about what is happening within schools that causes students and children to enter the court system mm -hmm. from the 2017 book um so here are some steps of the actual pipeline and how it pushes kids down um so there is the Zero tolerance, right? In addition to the biased disciplining of students of color, the Federal Gun-Free Schools Act of 1994, which mandated a one-year suspension for students who brought a firearm to school, heralded the implementation of zero tolerance in schools. Mm -hmm. Zero tolerance policies were meant to deal out severe punishment for all offenses, no matter how minor, ostensibly in an effort to treat all offenders equally in the spirit of fairness and intolerance of rule breaking. Mm -hmm. Despite the policies being zero tolerance, it is clear that schools have a great discretion in how they interpret and implement the policies. Unfortunately, the wide net of zero tolerance policies have tended to catch and unequally punish culturally and linguistically diverse students, as well as students with disabilities mm -hmm. for minor infractions such as shooting rubber bands, mm -hmm. taking water pistols to school, pointing a finger in a game of cops and robbers, truancy, defiance, disrespect, chasing or running in the halls, and profanity. Mm -hmm. As evidence shows, schools disproportionately apply it to African-American and Latino students. Right. So there's something the CLD students are going to come up a lot. That's culturally, linguistically, and diverse students. So that is going to be students who maybe are English language learners, things like that. And this is something that we've talked about a lot, actually. So there is one culture, the culture of the school, and actually... Mm -hmm. And if you live in that neighborhood of the school, if your teachers live in that neighborhood, the school culture is going to also be your home culture. And that is like the research shows that that is the best learning environment for a student. So if a student is culturally and linguistically diverse, so they go to a school who the school has different religious practices than they do. Right. They speak a different language at home, things like that. That is going to be a more difficult learning environment. So that discipline and not just discipline, but zero tolerance discipline started in the early 90s disproportionately affects CLD students, right. culturally and linguistically diverse students, which encompasses a lot of students of color. So mm -hmm. I am going to back up a little bit and say this all has to do with punishment and discipline. Yes. I touched upon this in our September episode just a couple months ago. Um, episode 14, which is the autism in comics and social emotional learning, in which we talked about how discipline can affect students with disability, where if a student has a learning difference, they can become disciplined harsher. Mm -hmm. So not only is like the punishment, like E was talking about, with the way punishment is delivered and how that changed, we are talking about the history of discipline in schools and how there is a direct correlation between those two institutions. Yes. 
Another thing that can take place within schools is policing of school hallways. So this is back from the 2017 book. Many under-resourced schools become pipeline gateways by placing increased reliance on police rather than teachers and administrators to maintain discipline. Growing numbers of mm-hmm. districts employ school resource officers or SROs to patrol school hallways, often with little or no training in working with youth. Mm. As a result, children are far more likely to be subject to school-based arrests, the majority of which are for nonviolent offenses, such as disruptive behavior, than they were a generation ago. Mm -hmm. The rise in school-based arrests, the quickest route from the classroom to the jailhouse, most directly exemplifies the criminalization of school children. Another thing that happens on the pipeline is disciplinary alternative schools, So I'm sort of, um, it's a pipeline, right? So this is sort of further down. Right. In some jurisdictions, students who have been suspended or expelled have no right to an education at all. In others, they are sent to disciplinary alternative schools. Growing in number across the country, these shadow systems, sometimes run Mm -hmm. by private for-profit companies are immune from educational accountability standards, such as minimum classroom hours and curriculum requirements, and may fail to provide meaningful educational services to the students who need them most. As a result, struggling students return to their regular schools unprepared, are permanently locked into inferior educational settings, or are funneled through alternative schools into the juvenile justice system. Mm-hmm. So the next step on the pipeline is court involvement and juvenile detention. Right. Students pushed along the pipeline find themselves in juvenile detention facilities, many of which provide few, if any, educational services. Students of color who are far more likely than their white peers to be suspended, expelled, or arrested for the same kind of conduct at school as their white peers, mm-hmm. and those with disabilities are particularly likely to travel down this pipeline. Though many students are propelled down the pipeline from school to jail, it is difficult for them to make the journey in reverse. Students who enter the juvenile justice system face many barriers to their re-entry into traditional schools. The vast majority of these students never graduate from high school. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about the school-to-prison pipeline. What I wanted to talk about next is the history of this institutionalized trend. Mm -hmm. This is from a 2016 book, which is also called The School to Prison Pipeline, colon, A Comprehensive Assessment by Mallet. So I'm going to call this one the 2016 book. Schools and juvenile courts have not historically been mired in the discipline dispensions techniques utilized today, but there was always a focus on controlling young people particularly those difficult or troublesome to manage. Mm -hmm. The balance among education, discipline, and school management has faced challenges over time. Since the 1800s, so the 1800s um, is a time period and you were talking about what was the time, what was happening in the 1800s with prisons? Um, so the 1820s are when the American systems of penitentiaries start to like be built, like Auburn and then Eastern State. 
Okay. There are constructions of jails. I do know that, like, the first juvenile center is built around then, um, but it was only for white kids. Okay. So they're starting to build things, right? Yeah. In the 1800s, many schools utilized corporal punishment, with remnants of these discipline techniques still incorporated as regular classroom management practice into the 1960s and 70s. Mm-hmm. So the definition of corporal punishment, um, it's physical punishment, like, in order to cause pain. Yes. This is important, right? So the 60s and 70s, people who were in school in the 60s and 70s are very much still alive. Yes. So there are people who experienced abuse at school mm-hmm. who are still walking this earth. And that is key to not only think about current students, but students of the past, right? Current adults. Yeah. As school populations exponentially grew during this time period and corporal punishment became less acceptable and effective, other techniques were employed, including suspension and expulsion of disruptive students from school. However, because of legal challenges, and in particularly the Goss versus Lopez Supreme Court decision of 1975, which found due process violations in the suspension and expulsion of schools without hearings, schools altered their policies to include in-school suspensions. These alternative suspensions removed disruptive students from the classroom, but kept them inside the school to complete their work. These more rehabilitative effects were favored by most school administrators through the 19. 80s until the growth of mandatory disciplinary outcomes for disruptive students became the norm in 1996. Mm-hmm. So this is going to start to overlap with what E was talking about. Right, right, yeah. A number of factors impacted the schools and juvenile courts, both independently and interdependently, leading this march towards today's punitive paradigm, the establishment of the school-to-prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. These included the movement in the 1980s towards a tough-on crime approach to both adult and juvenile courts, as evidenced by Mm -hmm. the three strikes and you're out laws, and the large numbers of youthful offenders transferred into adult criminal courts, rising rates of juvenile arrests for violent crimes in the 1980s, and concerns, though incorrect, that young people were increasingly dangerous, passage and enactment Mm -hmm. of the Gun-Free Schools Act of 1994, which we talked about, the impact and aftermath of the 1999 Columbine school shooting and other school shootings, establishment of zero-tolerance disciplinary policies across most schools nationwide, the increased Mm -hmm. utilization and federal funding of police officers, SROs, school resource officers in schools, declining school funding, Mm -hmm. the resegregation of schools by race and class, Um, We haven't actually talked Mm -hmm. about this, but schools are deeply segregated nowadays, right? So they were desegregated 50, 60 years ago now, and now they are significantly more segregated currently Mm -hmm. for race and class, which is key. Socioeconomics is key. And the focus of the no child left behind law on test scores and related consequences. So that's the 1980s into the 1990s. This is also, I didn't mention this in my segment, but this is also the same time uh, Dr. Miller talks about there being um, an increase in what are called liability laws. Uh, which mm. are the laws that make people responsible for potential crime that someone could do. And they're different from state to state. But Yeah, and that's something I can think of. I don't have anything written about that now, but that's absolutely true within schools, right? So if you're, yeah. if a student is even disruptive in class, that is, in theory, harming the other students, right? So you choose the majority over the minority. Yeah. 
Or if you're afraid a student might hurt someone, might hurt another student, might hurt a faculty member. That mm -hmm. is like the extreme case, but a lot of these cases are just behavioral. So to continue quoting from 2016 book, the 1980s and 1990s spawned fears and media reports of young people, often minorities, committing horrific crimes, wilding events, gang violence, and concern in the emergence of, quote, the juvenile super predator mm -hmm. were wholly disproportionate to the reality of youth violence. So um, yeah. this is key. I really wanted to point this out because this was talked about a lot during Hillary Clinton's um, presidential campaign in 2016. 2015 is how she had talked about community policing and she had talked about um, the kinds of kids you call super predators right so this right. is a growing fear although it was like highly disproportionate to the reality so this was like the culture. Yeah. The commission of violent crimes, homicide, aggravated assault, and robbery and rape by young people peaked in 1994, whereas these rates have plummeted for the last two decades. Nonetheless, state and federal legislation has enacted throughout the 1990s and early 2000s that increased punitive outcomes for many adolescents, including trying more adolescents as adults, mm -hmm. expanding the severity of penalties, and minimizing rehabilitative alternatives. Right. These policy changes and perception problems across the country set the stage for the movement toward control and discipline within the schools and, as noted, particularly in urban schools. However, when this punitive paradigm was impacted by the fallout from school shooting incidents, movements towards school lockdowns and more prison-like security environments exponentially progressed across all school districts. Mm -hmm. The Columbine incident of 1999 was not the first school shooting of this era, but it was the most deadly of all tragedies, had the greatest impact on public perceptions, was covered more extensively by the media and more significantly reinforced and motivated the security environment movement within schools. In the decade before the Columbine tragedy, there were other school shooting incidents with far less media coverage. The 2012 shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut have reignited some of these disproportionate fears and increased established school violence prevention policies. Most of these mm -hmm. shootings occurred in what what many families feel were safe school districts, white, suburban, and middle class, mm. leading to the increased fear that these tragic incidents could happen anywhere. A, a new brand of adolescent violence or predator has now feared at hand a transition that also reinforced and reignited the ideas of a teenage super predator. Mm -hmm. Although these school incidences were tragic, caused the deaths of innocence, and struck fear in many parents' perceptions, schools still remain the safest place for children and adolescents. Yet, as will be seen, it is inappropriate and ineffective public policy to have small or unique tragic events direct violence prevention measures. For even across these school shootings, few causative connections can be found. Um, like what they were saying before is that these large national events, these large tragic school shootings, take place in white, suburban, and middle-class areas for the significant portion of these ones that get a lot of media attention. Right. And what this author poses 
is that this makes people feel like they could happen anywhere, right? So if it happens to the white and the middle class, then it must be happening to everyone. Mm -hmm. But what ends up happening is that you end up having significantly more police presence within black and brown schools. Right. So I was, as I was saying, schools are significantly more segregated now, right? Within Mm -hmm. urban schools, there are already SROs. There are already school resource officers. And some of them are armed. So that is only going to increase the policing of the disenfranchised. Yeah. So this increased policing means that there's increased punishment within these schools. Mm-hmm. I have some statistics, suspension rates, because it's easy to talk about trends, but to actually generally start to look at research and numbers, I think is really key because it's easy to say, I feel this way. It seems like this, but I really want us to actually look at numbers when we're talking about these specific things, right? Yeah. So this is back from the 2017 book. This is their first chapter. Um, so this is suspension rates in minority students. Minoritized students such as Black, Latino, culturally and linguistically diverse students, refugees and immigrants, and low-income students, among other subgroups, are more likely to be referred, suspended, expelled, and arrested while in school. Moreover, they are also more likely to be academically impacted by the disciplinary action that they endure. Mm -hmm. That's key, right? That's key is that they're academically impacted. For instance, the 2011 landmark statewide study in Texas called Breaking Schools' Rules examined suspension and expulsion of nearly 1 million public secondary school students who were followed up for at least six years approximately 60% of public school students were suspended or expelled at least once between grades 7 and 12. When students were suspended or expelled at least once, the likelihood that they repeated a grade, dropped out of school, and or got involved in juvenile justice system increased significantly. African Americans and students with disabilities were disproportionately suspended or expelled to a higher degree compared to their peers without disabilities, and suspension and expulsion rates varied with schools. Another study by Lozen and Gillespie, 2012, found a disproportionately higher suspension rates for African Americans, 17%, in K-12 schools compared to 8% for Native Americans, 7% for Latinos, 5% for whites, and 2% for Asian Americans. So this is the percentage of students who were suspended. 17% of African American students were suspended. More than 13% of all students with disabilities were suspended, which is approximately twice that then of their peers without disabilities. More so, 25% of African American students with disabilities were suspended at least once in the 2009 to 2010 school year. 25% of black students with disabilities were suspended. That's Mm. a lot of kids. Additionally, African Americans and students with disabilities were more likely to be suspended repeatedly in one school year. And a final consideration to the context of school suspensions is a strong link between low-income and culturally diverse linguistic students. Mm -hmm. Low-income students, especially those who are also minoritized in other ways, are suspended from school more frequently than middle and high-income students. So we need to talk about these rates of suspension because suspension is key to the beginning of this pipeline right? Because you fall behind. And if you've fallen behind, you're less likely to engage further, right? It's harder to catch up. And then you're only going to get suspended more and more. Right. The the 2017 book, chapter two, by um, 
Irby is called The Indignities in Which the School-to-Prison Pipeline is Built, Life Stories of Two Formerly Incarcerated Black Male School Leavers. They talk about why this kind of work is really important. Um, In this chapter, I present narratives of two black men who represent a population of people who are often talked about but seldom heard from in school-to-prison pipeline research. Qualitative research that offers insights into the lived experiences of black males and the way they personally make meaning of their experiences. I think this is key. So these are people who went to school in the late 60s and early 70s. There's a gentleman named Uh Dion who talks about how he was having a hard time in school and how it's sort of, it just snowballs, right? Yeah. You have a hard time in school. You can't relate to your classmates. You end up going into a reform school. Reform schools at this time were abusive. It just snowballs into not being able to pull yourself out. And because of this system, right? Like, how are you supposed to pull yourself out of the system when it's continually, continually, continually disenfranchising you? So I just... So this is what's happening in schools, right? This idea of discipline, right? So we need to think about, we need to re-examine discipline. Mm-hmm. So to the 2017 book, um, chapter nine is what can we do right now? What needs further research? And they sort of talk about the steps that researchers can take, the steps that educators can take. Mm-hmm. A lot of it has to do with restorative discipline. Um, but restorative practices that don't focus on traditional goals to maintain order. So it's just this concept that even if you restore discipline, so this is a lot like what E was talking about with restorative of for the prison industrial complex versus abolishing it, right? Right. Like what is discipline for? Discipline is in order to maintain order of a school, right? To maintain control of students. And Mm -hmm. so we need to Mm reevaluate what we want discipline to do and why we are doing it. Right. And I would argue, like the argument that I made in the um, social emotional learning episode is that mm-hmm. what needs to take place is the change in which what we are asking students to do, change in which how we are asking them to do it, change in which ha- the evaluation process, more student-centered work, right? Responding to the students rather than forcing the students to um, fit into the mold mm-hmm. of the classroom and fit into the mold of the school right responding to their needs yeah so just like here are a few conclusions on how to disrupt the school to prison pipeline eliminate zero tolerance policies full stop begin and continue principal and teacher development workshops to help them become aware of their ethnocentricity and develop other cultural understandings Begin and continue principal and teacher development workshops to help teachers to teach and maintain discipline in a culturally responsive manner for black, brown, and lower income boys. I love that. I love it when these things get really specific, right? Right. Because so like culturally responsive, right? Ways in which students understand. That's really important. Combat the discourses that construct black, brown, and lower income boys as deviant. When using innovative disciplinary strategies that are intended to circumvent, disrupt, or dismantle the school or prison pipeline, be cautious that the practices are not used to maintain order, but rather create an environment of belonging for vulnerable youth. Rather than ostracizing, removing students, how can they be welcomed in? Okay, so another key thing is that there's disability rights. There's the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. Right. So what a lot of this research was actually talking about is how the ADA can actually be used to disrupt the school to prison pipeline in a very like now. So it is 
the right for Americans mm-hmm. with disabilities to receive the same things that Americans without disabilities receive. And if students with disabilities are not receiving the same right to an education that their peers are getting, then that can be used to dismantle what is happening, right? Which is exactly what we were talking about mm-hmm. in that other episode. Um, I'm just going to touch upon the juvenile court system and its history. Okay. So this book um, by Mallet, the 2016 book, sort of talks about how zero tolerance measures are leading to schools having prison-like qualities. So in many schools, these policies are supported and reinforced through the use of security guards, metal detectors, police officers working in the building, and surveillance by cameras. Security practices are not new in school districts, but they have changed over time from a focus on property crime and thefts to a concern about individual victimization and toward today's broad security operations. Mm. Okay, so let's look at numbers. 26% of African-American students report walking through metal detectors on entering school compared with only 5.4% of white students. Okay, so they're already within a prison-like environment. Right. These prison-like environments, even when designed in security-friendly architecture and planning typically found in newer suburban schools, harm the learning environment for many students. In lower-income neighborhoods with more poorly funded schools, the impact of these security personnel and measures can be much harsher on students. These environments can produce negative reactions, fears, or worries for any students about their schools. However, in some schools, students may feel resentment and negative Mm -hmm. feelings towards the surveillance and oversight itself. I can attest to how much a student, an adolescent, want privacy, right? They're discovering who they are. You don't want to be watched. No one wants to be watched, right? Yeah. So the pipeline shocker does not improve school safety. Millions of students nationwide are impacted annually by zero tolerance policies, and hundreds of thousands of middle and high school students are caught every year within the school to prison pipeline through suspensions, arrests by school resource officers, and for some expulsion. Sorry, I just can't, I can't smooth over how there are cops in schools arresting students it's just yeah. so disgusting yeah. Yeah. to me. There should there shouldn't be cops in schools. Like. <laughs> I know. I just like don't want to just say it. It's just like mm-hmm. it's so disgusting. The presence of police officers has increased school arrests on school grounds from 300% to 500% annually since the establishment of zero tolerance policies, most of the time for non-serious offenses unruly behaviors, disobedience, or status offenses, tardiness. As an example, in the 2009 to 2010 academic year, 96,000 students were arrested while on school grounds, and 242,000 were referred to the juvenile courts by school officials. 242,000. In tandem with the philosophy of many juvenile justice system detention and incarceration facilities during the 1990s, it is believed that increased school discipline and zero-tolerance policies would have a deterrent effect on students and improve behaviors. However, increasing school suspensions has increased student misbehavior, and suspensions and expulsions have increased the likelihood for school Mm. dropout or delayed graduation. These harsh discipline policies increase education failure, isolate students socially, and restrict young adult economic options. These discipline outcomes cause behavior and incident recidivism Mm -hmm. problems for disciplined students returning to school. 
There's some history on juvenile courts. I'm not going to get too deeply into it. But what was really interesting is actually sort of the change of the mindset around it. So originally the mindset was that the, there were these houses of refuge. Um, these were facilities housed a broad array mm-hmm. of young people in need, including those who were delinquent, neglected, and or dependent. Um, so the idea was that the state is the benevolent caretaker mm-hmm. when the family is no longer willing or able to serve the best interests of the child. This philosophy continued to guide the movement of the houses of refuge to the child savers movement and the establishment of juvenile courts. Mm. The child savers movement worked with the urban poor in the end of the 1800s trying to keep children and adolescents sheltered and fed, gradually gave way to the establishment of reform schools, which is what we talked about with the man who was interviewed, who had experienced the school-to-prison pipeline. Reform schools were criticized for lacking proactive efforts to change the behavior of juvenile delinquents. The expansion of the Progressive Era, 1880 to 1920, brought reforms and doctrine of its parents' pitre to the school. So parents' pitre is who is the caretaker of the children. So the school becomes the caretaker of the children. This movement provided safeguards for children and adolescents who were charged with delinquency, including truancy and lack of supervision, with the state of Illinois establishing the first juvenile court in 1899. By 1925, 46 of the existing 48 states had at this time had established juvenile or specialized courts for Mm. children and adolescents. In conjunction with the establishment of juvenile courts, the use of correctional facilities for delinquent youthful offenders expanded from the 1940s to the 1960s. By the 1960s, a majority of these brought before the juvenile courts were at some point held in a detention facility or correctional facility. This detained incarcerated population totaled more than 100,000 annually in the 1940s, rising to more than 400,000 by the 1960s. Many of these facilities were substandard and they did not include rehabilitative services or medical care. Again, these are people who are still alive. Right. And another thing that actually, I wanted to include this, so not only is this within the last 100 years, but also this really overlaps with comic books, right? So a long while ago, way back when we talked more about comic books on <laughs> drawing a dialogue, um, we talked about like juvenile crime, right? And crime, right, comics. right, right. It's like a huge aspect of the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties of yeah. all these comics, right? Yeah, and that's what yeah. Frederick Wortham is talking yeah. about. So this is what's actually happening, and so the comics that were being created at this time were right. were responding to this. So then juvenile courts were sort of established as more of a reform effort Mm -hmm. to humanely provide for the best interests of the neglected, abused, and delinquent children. And then the continued poor treatment of the system-involved youthful offenders and the perception that the social welfare approach was doing little to curb the expanding juvenile crime resulted in more attention on the issues of due process. Youthful offenders were often treated like adult criminals, but they had none of the legal protection granted to adults. Eventually, due process concerns came to the forefront of juvenile justice system. The intent is mm. the, called the Galt decision was to balance the broad powers of the juvenile court by providing legal protection for juveniles. However, the Galt decision also focused attention on similarities between the juvenile and adult courts versus the differences of intent underlying the two systems. Although, in theory, still oriented toward rehabilitation. 
The new focus on due process resulted in the juvenile system orienting toward retribution as a means to address delinquency. Right. The hallmark of the adult criminal justice system. Okay. This shift toward treating adolescents as adults, combined with the influential but misunderstood message of nothing works in rehabilitative youthful offenders, has set the stage for the next era of change in the juvenile justice system. So juvenile court became focused on the punitive Mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s. Again, within me and E's lifetime. Yes. So this also overlaps with our episode on violence in the media and how it is affecting teens, which is episode 7. If you listen to it, you'll know that it is debunked that violence in the media and violence in comics affects the violent nature of teenagers and children. But again, the way in which in the 80s and 90s, this zero tolerance Mm -hmm. policy, this fear of violence, of school shootings has exacerbated more belief that students all have the potential of violence, especially students who are marginalized. So it's all a fiction, right? It's all a fiction that seeing fictional violence is going to cause you to be violent and all youth have the potential of violence and they need to be punished. Because all it takes is one school official or a teacher or cop deciding that you look like a person who could commit a crime. Yeah. So all this being said, I was really interested in wanting to talk about the state of incarcerated youth. Like who is in these mm-hmm. in the juvenile justice system? How are they being treated? What does their education look like? Right. What does their art education look like? At some point when you're actually starting to look for uh, the praxis of education, um, there isn't any. There is so mm-hmm. little documented yeah. and researched. So I wrote this little statement. Um, As always with drawing a dialogue, we are creating scholarship where there is a gap. I wanted to look at what art education looks like for incarcerated youth. But the main resource that I found were articles from the journal of correctional education, which carries a bias with it, right? Because it's a journal about correctional education, right? So they're going to be biased Mm -hmm. towards themselves. I don't want to be dismissive. These are people who are working within the system as we know it. The main article I found about Praxis focused on on a program that was exceptional, which is not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in what is genuinely actually happening to people, what is happening to children. So I sourced more statistics, all gathered from a survey with voluntary participation, right? So I found statistics on what art education looks like. It was all a voluntary survey that was mostly filled out by prison Hmm. administration. And I got these statistics from the Journal of Correctional Education. So all of this is going to be terribly biased. All of this is going through the lens of the people who are controlling, right? They're controlling how we perceive the incarcerated. Mm -hmm. They are controlling everything, right? They're controlling their lives. They're controlling how we see their lives. So as we, Mm -hmm. me and E talked about at the very beginning, um, this is something that we're going to continue to look into. This isn't over. Yes. This is what um, incarceration is designed to do. It is designed to isolate people, Mm -hmm. be shady, be secretive. I do want to shout out the very first episode of our Drawing a Dialogue Presents series, which is our interview series, um, is an interview with cartoonist and educator Walker Metling, who taught art classes within a juvenile correctional facility. So I do want to refer you to that episode in which I talked to him about his experiences teaching on the inside. I want to continue to move forward seeking out information that is like what is genuinely happening in this country within Mm -hmm. juvenile correctional facilities. I think it's good that we have this foundational episode for the future work that we will be doing on this topic. When I'm talking to you, 
please email us if you know of organizations, teachers, or individuals who have experience with art education yeah. on the inside, right? Like, we want to talk to people who have experienced incarceration. Our email is drawingadialogue at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. Please reach out. I mentioned this before, but there was an article called Engaging Latinx Students in the Secondary English Classroom, A Step Towards Breaking the School-to-Prison Pipeline. It is by Ruben. It is exactly, he's talking about how ELL students are at high, high, high risk of not graduating on time, mm -hmm. of falling behind because they're still English language learners. And so he is doing a call towards cultural sensitivity, towards student-centered teaching to include students. Students are not the exception. They should be who you are teaching towards, right? So yeah, the yeah. idea is that to center mm -hmm. all students rather than just the majority. I also wanted to shout out, there's plenty of resources out there. I found the Prison mm -hmm. Arts Coalition, which has information resources for those creating art in and around the U.S. prison system. They have publications, opportunities, events, resources, etc. You can find their website at theprisonartscoalition.com. It all looked very recent. It, they look active. They looked like an awesome resource. Um, I'm going to continue to collect resources. Please do email us. Yeah. That's my segment. Thank you so much. It's a big topic, but I hope that we can continue to explore and that people will, on their own, engage in ways that are meaningful. Yeah, and, and if you do engage, tell us yeah. about it. Share it. Publish it. Mm -hmm. It encourages more people it does. to do it. It's because, just to reiterate, incarceration is invented to keep people secret. Mm -hmm. And so it's our job to get those secrets out. Yeah. So now it's time for Letters to the Editor, our regular segment where we talk about resources that are relevant to past topics, or we talk about actual letters um, that we have received. What do you have for us today, E? So I wanted to say that um, I had the opportunity as part of my uh, Carceral Studies seminar to participate in a brown bag lunch with Ruben Miller, whose uh, work I've been talking about today. We discussed his article on uh, carceral citizenship that'll be cited in the um, episode notes. Um, and he elaborated on some of his ideas and we spoke about activation and um, prisoner agency. He's mm. a working contemporary um, scholar and I think his work is really important. Um, so I was really happy to have that opportunity <laughs> and the other mm. thing i felt this is like this is just a thing i felt like was necessary to say especially considering what this episode is about um because i'm a student at the university of florida as i said in our intro and um the university of florida does use prison labor um they have contracts mm. with a few a, I, don't, I don't think it's just one i think it's multiple uh, correctional facilities um and the specifically the what is what is called ifes which is um the uh institute of food and agriculture sciences uses prison labor mm. in their facilities um so i just felt it was very important mm. to be like while we're talking about this um <laughs> The school I go to. And, yeah. and I think that's like a thing. If you if you are a person who's in school, especially if you go to a, like a larger school that has agriculture sections or things like that, or like work with a place, like a lot of places use prison labor and it's good to be aware so you can fight against it. It might be IWOC would be someone to contact, but it's it's exactly how it's it's really secretive. 
It's really hidden. And also, I mean, there was recently, it's going to be in the past now, but there was recently a um, strike of prison workers. Um, So maybe um, you can see if there was a strike near your area. Mm -hmm. And maybe there are um, organizations who are working with people on the inside. Um, That would be another way to find out. Um, And then I have a letter to the editor. Oh. Um, one of my jobs is I'm a high school teacher. Yeah. Um, I have been doing this fall in lieu of a fall play with the theater students. Mm -hmm. We are doing something that's called forum theater. So that's F-O-R-U-M theater. So you can Google that. Okay. Um, it's a form of theater. It's called the theater of the oppressed. So what it is in this case, we have Uh, students from the student population performing for their teachers, performing for their parents. And what they are performing is fictionalized versions of real things that have happened to them in their life at school Mm. um, in some sense of oppression, right? So it could be racialized, it could be gendered. So they're, they're these real things. And Part of it is designed to show how microaggressions can hurt people yeah. and really oppress people. Um, it's like a very one-on-one experience, right? You're showing it to the very people that ha- might have done this to you and yeah. your friends, right? Yeah. And then it's an opportunity for students to do this performance and it has it's a scene with a sort of a negative outcome, right? Mm-hmm. Something bad has happened. And then you redo the scene and you invite the audience to come in and participate and try to have a positive outcome, try to change the behaviors of the actors. Mm-hmm. And so not only is it modeling microaggressions or like overt aggressions, but it is all practice, improvisational practice to how to address those moments within the classroom or within like other school settings. Um, it, I'm talking as a student, as a teacher working with students, but there, this can happen in any sort of community. Yeah. Anyway, so it's been really wonderful. The students have been doing a fantastic work. Uh, it's student written, um, and then it's I've, we've been getting wonderful feedback from faculty and parents who have seen the plays, like didn't realize that certain things were maybe hurtful right. or oppressive. So it's just been wonderful. So that's like a practicum. <laughs> thing if you are a student try bringing that to your teacher or if you are a drama teacher or even if you are just like an English teacher and you want to go talk to the drama teacher about this um forum theater there's tons of resources on it it's been really wonderful that's super cool thank you for telling us about that So this has been Drawing a Dialogue. Thank you so much for listening. I want to say thanks to Downtown Boys for their song Wave of History. It's off their album Full Communism. You can get it off their band camp. You can get citations for this episode and links to all the other episodes um, at drawingadialogue.com. You can follow us, uh, the podcast, on Twitter at drawadialogue. Please tweet us. Let us know if you're listening. Um, You can also check out Kathy's Arts Education website. Uh, comicarted.com um, and you can follow me on Twitter at ehetja which is E-H-E-T-J-A and you can follow me at Kathy G. John that's C-A-T-H-Y G-J-O-H-N mm-hmm. we never say this but my portfolio my art portfolio is kathygjohn.net oh. and you have ehetja.com right? yeah I'm ehetja.com so both our Twitter handles are also our websites. Yeah. Anyway, so we make art too. Yeah. You can check that out. So thank you for listening. Uh, what are you reading, E? Um, 
so I want to talk as appropriate to this episode. I actually wanted to talk. Uh, one of the books we read for class um, was Austin Reed's The Life and Adventures of a Haunted Convict, which is this really it's very recently been published. Um, but Austin Reed was a free black man born in 1820s New York who spent most of his life in and out of what would have then been the very early prison system in America. Um, so he was at the House of Refuge and then later on would go on to be in Auburn, uh, which was the, one of the prison systems I mentioned. And mm, yeah. um, this is like a very interesting text because um, they, they uh, the manuscript for it was actually just found at a garage sale in upstate New York. And the people who are selling it wouldn't give any information about like who had it or where they got it from. So then uh, Caleb Smith, uh, who is a an important figure in prison studies and a few other scholars, like spent a lot of time verifying it because people thought it couldn't be real because of like biases and stuff. Right. And mm. so after they were able to verify it um, the, the as like a, a legitimate manuscript, um, Caleb Smith edited a little bit and then they published it. Uh, and so it's like this really, it's like books like, like manuscripts like this just don't exist that are like full life story yeah, autobiographies of like a black man who is in these systems. So it's just like this incredibly valuable, rare, uh, historical treasure <laughs> essentially. And, um, mm. they chose to publish it not with an academic press, but with a, a more like accessible press. So it's like... You can just go get it. <laughs> um, I know. Like, if you look up the two books that I mainly cited, they're both a hundred dollars. Right. Yeah, Amazon. academic publishing is very expensive. Like, they're not. Yeah. Um. So I just, it's, it's, it's. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's like just very interesting and uh, valuable historically, but also I think it's just you know, there's a lot in here about like that shows like sort of what I was talking about those like very early American frameworks. Um, is a lot. I mean, Austin Austin Reed was like a free black man in the 1800s, right? And that's like another like source that's like rare to hear from. Yeah. So it's just it's like a really it's a very good book. <laughs> um, I would recommend it. Yeah. What are you reading, Kathy? So I haven't cracked it open yet, but I've been really excited to read Hey Kiddo. Mm. Um, it's a YA graphic novel. It just came out. It's by Jarrett J. Krasazka. Right. Um, it's about growing up with a mother who is suffering from addiction, who actually becomes incarcerated mm. in during his childhood. So I'm not sure. I haven't read it yet, but I've been very excited, especially just to have a book for youth about addiction. Right. Um, I think is is like a real hole in literature. So I'm really excited to have this book, um, especially for me and for students. Mm -hmm. So this has been Drawing a Dialogue. Thank you so much for listening. Um, farewell to our intrepid volunteers. Bye! Bye.